Welcome to the third episode of Sample Size One, a podcast about unrepeatable experiments in music and art. I'm Dave Hillowitz. Nowadays, if you're going to be in a band, chances are you'll pick one of four instruments, guitar, bass, drums, or keyboards. The idea of what constitutes a rock band got crystallized sometime in the 50s and 60s, when rock and roll emerged as the dominant form of popular music, and I've always suspected that the choice of instruments was actually pretty arbitrary. You know, that it was just something that worked and got repeated again and again. Now, I make a form of rock music, and for the most part, my songs are built around the guitar. Still, I can't help wondering, what if the electric guitar hadn't gotten so popular? What instrument would I be playing instead? To answer this question, I've decided to take a trip back in time by means of the 1903 Sears Roebuck catalog. At the time, Sears didn't have any bricks-and-mortar stores. All sales were done via mail order. Their motto was, we sell everything, and everything for them included a large selection of musical instruments. By the way, their catalog is absolutely gorgeous, with meticulously detailed engravings of thousands of products. If you haven't seen it, you definitely should check it out. I also like it because you can get a good idea of what instruments were popular back then just by counting the number of pages that they dedicated to each type. So let's take a look. The music section opens with about four pages of pianos. The most expensive one is priced at $32.45. That section is followed by organs. Next, we transition into guitars, mandolins, and banjos. Each of these gets two pages. What's so shocking about this is how little space the guitars get. Compare this with modern day music catalogs. For example, just yesterday I got a catalog in the mail. The entire instrument section is 85 pages long, of which 70 pages were just guitars. In other words, 80% of the catalog is guitars. Compare that with a Sears catalog where guitars are just 7%. But in talking so much about guitars, I'm kind of bearing the lead here. After the pages containing banjos, there's a whole section dedicated to a class of instrument that just isn't in wide circulation at all anymore. Each of these instruments has a different name. Some are called mandolin harps, others guitar harps, still others are auto harps, but they're all essentially the same. Each consists of a flat trapezoid of wood with a bunch of strings stretched over the top. There are a few variations for sale. Some of them have a row of buttons, others have a second set of strings that crisscrosses the first. Of all these instruments, the only one that's actually still in use today is the auto harp, and that's mainly just used for traditional country music. To be honest, I'm more interested in the other instruments, the ones that didn't stand the test of time. And these are exactly what I plan to focus on in this episode. I'm going to try to track some of these instruments down and find out what they sounded like. Okay, let's get started. January 9th, 2016. So, when we'd left off, I'd resolved to try to buy one of the instruments that was being sold in the 1903 Sears catalog. Well, I spent the better part of Saturday typing the names of the different instruments into the eBay search box, and I got a ton of matches. It seems that eBay is just awash with inexpensive tabletop harps and zithers. By the way, a zither is basically just a harp that lies flat on the table, and I guess it used to be a really, really popular instrument around the start of the 20th century, because there seem to be thousands of different models floating around junk shops and on the internet. Because this is eBay, and most of the sellers have no idea what they're actually selling, the listings often don't have any really useful information in them. It's often not even possible to find out how many strings the instrument has, let alone what they might be tuned to. I've decided to pull the trigger on a weird zither called the Phono Harp No. 2. It's being sold for $9 plus shipping. When I googled it, the only information I was able to turn up was that the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston has one in their permanent musical instrument collection. The MFA listing also says that these were made in 1895, so it's definitely an antique. 
Here's what the Sears catalog has to say about this instrument. The phonoharp. This musical novelty consists of a 17-string zithern, on the face of which is fastened a nickel-plated shield which protects certain strings from contact with the finger pick. Chords are produced by drawing pick across the shields, while the other hand remains free to play with as performer may desire. Instrument is made of the best materials, only the best piano wire being used, and it's handsomely finished in a thoroughly workmanlike manner. Price, $2.50. I looked up how much $2.50 of 1902 money would be today, and it would be $71, so these things were definitely priced to sell. I cannot wait for this thing to arrive. January 16th, 2016. So the phonoharp arrived this morning, and it's like the dustiest thing I've ever seen. The strings are metal, but they're so rusty that they've turned dark, dark brown. It has this funny metal grill on top of where the strings are, but because the wood has become unglued on one end of the harp, the strings are actually in the wrong position and they touch that grill. When I tried to play it, they scrape against the metal grill and it makes this awful noise. So yeah, I have my work cut out for me. My first order of business is going to be to remove that grill and then remove all of the strings. This should help me get at that wood that needs to be glued. Another challenge is that the strings are attached to these little pegs at one end of the harp, and you can only turn those pegs with a special harp tuning wrench, which of course I don't own. Luckily, they're still being made, and they're only like two bucks. Meanwhile, I've done some more research. I think I have a better understanding of why there are so many different kinds of zithers out there on eBay. As you probably know, there was a huge immigration boom in the US in the mid to late 19th century. Among the immigrants were a lot of Germans, and some of those Germans were instrument makers. At the time, the zither was super popular in Germany, so it only made sense that these makers would start producing the instrument in the US. Over the course of about 30 years, several dozen different zither makers showed up in the US, mostly on the eastern seaboard. The problem was, the zither, as it existed in Germany at the time, was extremely hard to play. It had a fretboard, but then it also had a bunch of loose strings that were kind of separate from the fretboard. All of the strings had different purposes. There were accompaniment strings, bass strings, melody strings. It was a total mess. There was a real desire on the part of these manufacturers to simplify this instrument. And these zither manufacturers got into a really aggressive patent war with one another, each trying to out-invent the next. The stakes were higher than just perfecting this one type of instrument. The zither war was about a sea change in the market for musical instruments. Traditionally, instruments were made for basically two kinds of people, professional musicians and wealthy families who wanted their children to have music lessons. Those were fairly small markets. These zither manufacturers were tapping into a new market that previous makers didn't even realize existed. Ordinary people without any musical training and without the time or resources for lessons, but who nonetheless wanted to be able to play music at home. If the manufacturers could come up with an instrument that was simple enough for anyone to play, and that could be made and sold cheaply, they could sell it on a massive scale. In other words, they were competing to invent and perfect the definitive people's instrument. Over the course of about 50 years, Dozens and dozens of different instruments were invented, and a lot of them sold really well. In fact, there are so many different varieties of these things that a couple of experts have put together sort of a family tree that classifies all the different types that exist. Their name for the entire category of instruments is fretless zithers. Out of all these variants, the only one that's still in production today is the auto harp, which was patented by C.F. Zimmerman of Philadelphia in 1882. Here's what the official 1895 review of the World's Columbian Exposition had to say about the auto harp exhibit. 
It is only a few years since the genius of C.F. Zimmerman evolved the simple and yet so marvelous chord bar. Great improvements have since been made in the instrument itself, and representing as it does the progressiveness and bold inventive genius of this great nation, it is not making too rash a prediction to say that the instrument will soon be recognized as America's national instrument. No other instrument in the history of modern music has attained to so great demand or possesses greater possibilities for the future than the auto harp under the propitious conditions which now guide its destinies. Here's the funny thing about all this nationalistic rhetoric. It was recently discovered that the auto harp model that was marketed under Zimmermann's name was actually copied from a zither maker back in Germany. Anyway, the instrument I have, the phono harp, was an also ran, a zither that was designed to solve the same problem that the auto harp was meant to solve. It was made in East Boston, and apparently this specific model was sold door-to-door, -door, along with a series of song cards that were targeted at non-musicians. By the way, the song cards that came with these instruments used almost exactly the same system of musical notation that can be found nowadays in music video games like Guitar Hero and Rock Band. Another interesting thing about the Phonoharp company is that a few years after this thing was made, in 1910, they bought the rights to the actual autoharp from its then-owner, Alfred Dolge. A few years after that, in 1926, they actually got bought out by the Oscar Schmidt company. Not only does Oscar Schmidt still exist today, but they're kind of like the fender of the auto harp world. Anyway, I have to go glue this thing. January 17th, 2016. So the glue dried on the phono harp and I polished the instrument with Old English. Once some of the dust was gone, I discovered that the specific note that each string is supposed to be tuned to is written on the instrument right below the string. I just spent an entire evening reattaching the strings. There's 17 strings on this thing. Each one had to be cut and then tied and wrapped around in a little loop. It was pretty awful. At one point, one of the rusty strings from 1895 went right through the tip of my index finger. I'm really glad I'm up to date on my tetanus shots. Okay, it's the moment of truth. Time to hear what this thing sounds like. This thing is great. I, like, can't wait to use this in a song. It sounds so much better than I was expecting. There's also the grill. So here's what happens when I swipe my pick along the rows of the grill. Okay, that's pretty cool. The noise of the pick hitting the steel grill is kind of intense, but I guess that's part of its charm. The only downside is that this thing is tuned to the key of C major, and I almost never write songs in C major because it's usually outside of my vocal range. Okay, I'm gonna play around with this thing for a while and see what I come up with. January 23rd, 2016. The other day, my wife and I were driving around Philly, and we were listening to Princeton Radio WPRB, and they're playing this beautiful piece of music. When it was over, the DJ announced it as being a guy named Robert Grawi, G-R-A-W-I, playing the Gravichord, an instrument he invented. When I got home, I looked up Grawi. He has a website with tons of pictures of the instrument, which looks nothing like I expected. For one thing, it's entirely metal. It sort of looks like the middle section of a trombone, but unlike the trombone, it has two courses of colored strings that run the entire length of it. It's a sort of double harp that's based on the West African kora. Because it's electric, it doesn't need a resonating chamber. 
All of its sound comes from special pickups that Growy designed himself. For a second, I toyed with the idea of buying one, but they're $2,000. Which seems like a fair price, but definitely way out of my budget. The Gravichord isn't directly related to any of the zithers of the late 19th century. Still, I see it as part of a separate, but parallel tradition going back to the same period. On the one hand, we have this mass market in industrial products like the auto harp and its many cousins. On the other, and at the same time, we can see a major uptick in the number and variety of homemade instruments, a sort of folk tradition of instrument making by non-professionals, and one that also produced many new kinds of harps. It's weird, but learning about Robert Growie really makes me want to build a musical instrument of my own. The phonoharp I bought was really cool, but it's only useful if I'm going to play in the key of C. It'd be nice to build something that was just like the phonoharp, but chromatic. In other words, I would want my instrument to contain all of the notes of every scale. You know, like the way a guitar or a piano does. January 30th, 2016. So, my wife and I were in New York over the weekend. One of the things we wanted to do while we were there was to go out to the Academy Records Annex in Brooklyn. When we got to Williamsburg, though, it turned out that Academy had moved to Greenpoint. They probably moved years ago, but neither of us had been in a while. Anyway, as we got back on the L at the Bedford stop, there was a guy playing the Cora on the subway platform. The Cora, you'll remember, is the West African harp that Bob Growie had been inspired by when he created his own gravichord instrument. Anyway, it was my first sighting of a Cora in the wild, or at least it was the first time I saw one and knew what I was looking at. The instrument consists of half of a giant gourd with a wooden stalk coming out of the top. Two sets of strings extend from the base of the gourd all the way up to the top of the stalk. The player holds the gourd between their legs and plucks at the strings with both hands. This particular player's name was Malang Jobarte, and the version of the Cora that he was playing was the Gambian Cora. His playing was really beautiful. I stood around and listened to him for a while. I didn't want to interrupt his performance by talking to him, so I did my best to try to figure out what it was that made the Cora sound so good. Due to its nylon strings, the Cora has a sweet sort of chimey sound, kind of like a cross between a Spanish guitar and a harpsichord. It also uses a giant gourd as a resonating chamber, which seems to produce quite a lot of sound. February 5th, 2016. So, my car got recalled this weekend. For the second time in the space of two years, the manufacturer has discovered a flaw in the airbags that needs to be fixed. The nearest dealership to me is in this quaint little suburb of Philadelphia called Ardmore, and the place is just littered with junk shops and antique stores, so every time my car gets recalled, which seems to be kind of a regular thing at this point, I like to kill time by going to these junk shops. So anyway, there I was this morning, browsing in one of these shops, it was actually a pretty awful store. Their entire inventory seemed to consist of... You know those porcelain figurines? I think they're called Hummels? Yeah, they had tons of those. I did happen to notice that they were also selling an elegant wooden box for $4. The box's original purpose was to store fancy silverware, 
In fact, it even had a brand label saying that the felt on the inside of it was specially designed to prevent silver from tarnishing. Side note, I'm so glad that actual silver flatware isn't such a thing anymore. Imagine how many years of people's time was wasted polishing silver. It tarnishes, like, instantly. Anyway, despite the manufacturer's claims, to me, the box could only have had one true purpose in its life, and that was to be the resonating chamber for my harp. It had everything. It was wood. It cost four dollars. Come to think of it, I think those were my only real requirements. I don't even know what kind of wood it's made out of, and that's super important when you're making a musical instrument. Anyway, I'm definitely going to use this thing. Now that I have my resonating chamber, it's time to order some strings. Unlike the phonoharp, which uses metal piano wire, I want my instrument to use nylon strings, just like the Cora. So I'm ordering a pack of nylon harp strings off of eBay. I hope they sound decent. February 12th, 2016. Okay, so the harp strings have finally arrived, which means it's time to do some tests. I've taken the longest piece of wood I have to work with and run a harp string from one end to the other. Here's what it sounds like. Not bad. Sort of a sweet sound. So the length of this string is 14 inches, and the note that it's hitting is a C. I know from playing guitar that the octave doubles every time the length of the string gets cut in half. In other words, if I want the note that's an octave above the note I just played, the distance should be half of 14 inches, or 7 inches. Similarly, if I wanted to hit the octave below my test string, the distance will need to be doubled, or 28 inches. I've plotted out what this whole project should look like on graph paper, and it looks pretty reasonable. Tomorrow's Saturday, and I'm gonna get up early and go to Home Depot to buy some wood. February 13th, 2016, 1pm. Okay, so imagine my luck. I'm walking down the street this morning, having just purchased two fine breakfast tacos, and I notice that somebody has thrown away a wooden microwave cart. It's super wobbly, so I totally know why they threw it away, but it has these wooden legs that would be perfect for my project. Each one is 32 inches long, which just happens to be the exact length of the longest side of my harp. I like how I'm calling it a harp, even though it's just a pile of wood right now. It's, uh... Aspirational. Anyway, I just spent an hour sawing pieces of wood. I, I worked up quite a sweat. I've been using a hacksaw because I'm terrified of real power tools. Now that that's done, the next step is to glue this giant trapezoid together. February 14th, 2016. So I'm trying to get myself psyched up for this project by listening to a ton of different kinds of zither music. There are a bunch of different ways that these instruments got used. There's a lot of religious music that came over from Germany in the 19th century. Silent Night, for example. And then there's the country auto harp music of the 50s and 60s. But perhaps the most interesting were the songs of Washington Phillips. Phillips was born in 1880 in Freestone County, Texas. His legacy is really a series of gospel blues recordings he made for Columbia Records from 1927 through 1929. What makes Phillips' song so unusual is that the backing instrumentation consists entirely of zithers. I say zithers plural because people speculate that he may have actually been playing two instruments at once. Here's what it sounded like. Sound quality is not great because it was recorded in 1927. 
The exact configuration of Phillips' instruments is sadly unknown, although a bunch of nerds on the internet have been researching and debating about it for, well, at least the better part of 20 years. There's a super grainy photo of Phillips holding two phonoharp zithers. He has one in each arm and he looks really uncomfortable. One of the researchers was so sure that he knew what instruments Phillips was holding that day in 1926 that he bought identical models and recreated the photo himself. It's pretty convincing. February 24th, 2016. So I was just at this junk shop where I discovered yet another variant of the zither that was also sold by Sears. By the way, I'm officially never allowed to go to a junk shop again. Ever since I got interested in these types of instruments, I've been stumbling across them everywhere. This particular one is called the Mandolin Guitaraphone. The name's kind of a mouthful. It was produced by Oscar Schmidt in Jersey City in 1917. So needless to say, I bought this thing. I brought it home. I cleaned it. Tuned it. It had all its original strings. It even came with the original owner's manual. It actually looks almost exactly like the phonoharp, except that it's double the width. But what makes it different is that it has buttons at one end of the strings. The buttons are connected to these hammers, and the hammers hit the strings. Unlike the ones on a piano, the hammers on this thing are kind of floppy, which means that they hit the string, then they spring back, and then they hit the string again, and then again, and then again. All of which makes a sound that's just totally insane. Check it out. Okay, so apparently the good folks at Oscar Schmidt believed that this sounded enough like a mandolin to include the word when they named it. There's actually another instrument that works exactly the same as this, called the marxophone. And as obscure instruments go, it's actually pretty famous. I think the Doors even used it in a song. The marxophone was produced by Oscar Schmidt's competitor, the Phonoharp Company. Of course, only a few years later, Oscar Schmidt would end up buying the Phonoharp Company and canceling both products, so there you have it. So remember when I said that instrument makers in America and Germany had been trying to come up with a people's instrument? Something that could be played by anyone? Well, apparently that was true elsewhere as well. At the start of the 20th century, a Japanese musician named Goro Morita went on a tour of America and Western Europe. While he was on his trip, he was inspired, not just by the musical instruments that he saw, but also by the typewriters that were in wide use throughout the West. When he got home, he took a traditional Japanese two-string harp and combined it with the buttons from a typewriter. The result was an instrument called the Taisho Koto. The Taisho part of the name comes from the fact that the Taisho dynasty began in 1912, the year that the instrument was invented, and Koto just means harp in Japanese. Morita marketed his new instrument to non-musicians, along with specially designed number music that made it easier to play. Sound familiar? So I was in an antique shop yesterday, and I happened to find a Taisho Koto. I didn't know what it was at first, but I knew that it was cool and that I needed to own it. It consists of a long black box with a painting of Mount Fuji on the top. Strings are stretched from one end to the other, all tuned to the same note. 
Along one side are a series of typewriter keys with numbers on them. Pressing on the keys causes the strings to form specific notes. Here's what it sounds like. So it seems the Taisho Koto became immensely popular in Japan, especially in the 20s and 30s. In the year 1926 alone, 255,000 of these things were sold. They're still made and sold today, in fact. A lot of kids learn how to play as part of their music education. Also, in the 30s, the Taisho Koto spread to India where it was given the name Bulbul Tarang. I'm definitely pronouncing that wrong. It's funny, of all the people's instruments I've looked at, the Taisho Koto is by far the most successful. So I was doing some more research on Washington Phillips, you know, the Texas blues man who performed by playing two zithers at once. It seems there's been a new discovery made by some folks on the internet. Specifically, a journalist named Michael Corcoran has uncovered a horribly racist but also historically useful article about him from a local Texas newspaper called The Teague Chronicle. The article's from 1907, so fully 20 years before Phillips had recorded anything. Here's a selection, and by the way, I'm leaving out the most racist parts, not because they don't matter historically, but because I don't want to repeat them here. There is a Negro in town named George Washington Phillips who has manufactured one of the most unique musical instruments we ever saw. It is a box about two by three feet six inches deep on which he has strung violin strings, something on the order of an auto harp. The music he gets out of the roughly made box is certainly surprising. He uses both hands and plays all sorts of airs. He calls it a manzarine. The discovery of this article is huge. It shows that Phillips had a long history of building his own instruments, who knows how many others he built that we'll never know about? It's also reopened a dormant debate about what instruments Phillips actually played on those recordings from the late 20s. February 27th, 2016. Okay, I'm finally getting back to work on my harp. It's been a long road, but we now have something that actually looks like my sketch. Man, is this thing huge. 32 inches didn't sound very long when it was just a number that was written on my graph paper, but now that I'm seeing this thing, I'm a little terrified. Where am I going to even store this? I've taken a pencil and measured out 25 equidistant spots down both sides of the frame. These spots will be where the strings attach to the harp. By my calculations, this should place the strings a little over a half an inch apart. Okay, it's time to drill some holes. February 28th, 2016. Okay. I'm almost afraid to say this, but this thing is finally done. I just spent three hours attaching strings in front of the TV. I tuned it. Twice. I don't think there's anything left to do. Let's hear it. <laughs> well, I, I think it sounds really nice, but I have absolutely no clue how to play it. I think I was secretly expecting that I would just turn the microphone on and I would just somehow let loose with a song of unimaginable beauty within the first five minutes. Still, this thing sounds great. Let's make some music. First, I'm gonna get the ball rolling with the metronome track. Let's use a bass drum sample from an 80s drum machine. Okay, now I'm gonna add some harp into the mix. Now let's make this thing more complicated. Let's add a second harp loop on top of the first one. It's almost starting to sound like music. Since the harp is only a treble instrument, 
I'm gonna add a bass guitar to the loop to kind of balance things out. Oh, and what if we could add the phono harp into the mix as well? Now all I need to do is write a melody to go over it. The plan is for the song to be entirely instrumental so as to better showcase the harp. Since the harp only has two octaves, I've intentionally built my backing loop using only the lower octave so that the upper octave would be reserved for the melody. Okay, that took way longer than I was hoping for. For some reason I had a heck of a time coming up with a melody. Be that as it may, the song is now complete. Check it out. There's a feeling that I was getting just now when I was playing the harp that I made that I didn't get from the phono harp. Part of it is that this is a much more responsive instrument. If you hit the strings harder, it gets louder. If you pluck the strings closer to the sound hole, the tone gets rounder and fuller. It has a lot of the same qualities as an acoustic guitar, but it's also pretty different. For one thing, you can play way more notes at the same time than you can on a guitar. Of course, if I'm being completely honest with myself, this wonderful feeling I'm getting probably doesn't have that much to do with the sound at all. There's something about playing a musical instrument that you yourself created that's magical in its own right. Sort of like inventing a language and then writing poetry in it, but with the added benefit that, because it's music, people can still understand you. When I started my quest, I asked, if the electric guitar hadn't become so popular, what instrument would I be playing instead? It's hard to know for sure. Would it really have been the zither? Maybe. Or maybe we'd all be playing the accordion instead. I want to thank my wife Emily and my sister-in-law Allie for listening to drafts of this episode and giving me notes. I also want to thank Greg Miner, Kelly Williams, as well as the late Gary Harrison. Each of them has done an incredible amount of research on fretless zithers over the years, and the information that they've posted online was invaluable in making this episode. The clip I used earlier of Silent Night being played on the zither was by a guy named Jonas Lorenz. The Tennessee Waltz being played on the auto harp was by Hank Brass. You can hear full versions of both on YouTube. Photos of the instrument that I built, as well as the ones that I bought, can be seen on samplesize1.com. If you've been enjoying these episodes, it would be great if you could tell a friend or two about the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>